One of our chief jobs, I think, as parents is to help form and shape their imaginations. Now, what you might be thinking about is all this stuff about playing and things like that, and I think that is part of their imagination. But what I'm speaking to is more um, maybe kind of what I experienced this weekend. So Danette and I are this week, uh, Danette and I went to our, our daughter, uh, our oldest daughter, Blakely, play soccer at New Mexico State. And so we uh, show up, um, we're excited about the game. Uh, she hasn't traveled. She's been injured. And so as we're watching the game, the game unfolds, and Blakely uh, sits and sits and sits and sits and sits and doesn't get in. And um, as we're watching this, there's players that are younger than her that are in. And I'm going to the dark parts of my own heart and mind in that, like both in my petty thoughts about the coach and why he's not playing her, but also about like, what does this mean for us? Because for me and my uh, life with her, one of the things that's brought me a lot of joy is watching her play. Um, and I know that she feels, in a sense, God's pleasure when she does play. And so what happens if she's not playing? So we're sad. She's sad. After the game, it's like a funeral is what it feels like. And uh, the next day when we meet her and pick her up, it's like even worse and so, in moments like that, as parents, what do we do? Whether it's your child who loses something when they're young, or experiences some sort of trauma, or turmoil, or just disagreement with a friend, like, how do we speak into that part of their life? Now, I think the temptation for us is to, when these things come, is to speak like funny quips, to speak uh, like kind of earthbound wisdom or to speak like, uh, you know, Pollyanna kind of vibes about how everything's going to work out in the end to them. Um, and instead, I think in those moments, we're called to speak into their imagination. Like when there's pain and sadness, in some ways a death of a dream or the death of an idol, what do we do in those moments? Well, we cry and we listen and eventually, maybe we speak into them. This is how it is. This is not how it always will be. This is not how it is, but this isn't truly how it is. Like, soccer ends. Bodies get old. Bodies even die. But there's something beyond that death. Now, we... Not to over-spiritualize everything, but we aren't, uh, not to be of no earthly good here, but a parent envisions the world as it is and as it should be. And technique can't always save. Wisdom is good, but repentance is better. In the books of First and Second Kings, we're going to look at the prophets of God. And what I want you to see is that the prophets, especially the two chief prophets who we'll be looking at, Elijah and Elisha, are called to speak thusly to Israel's imagination. Now, what is going on in First and Second Kings? Now, this is a big sermon, so I'm going to ask you to like try to hold on. Like, I'm going to preach First and Second Kings to you today in total. So we're going to be here a while. Now, in the first part, 
of, for, of kings, David's kingdom is established. Now to frame this a bit, remember God makes a covenant with David whom he loved. 2 Samuel 7, David is in his house resting from his enemies and he imagines what? Now here, see this. This is biblical imagination at work. David imagines what? As he's sitting in his colossal abode, he imagines the temple. David is like, look, I'm at rest in my place, and the Lord seems to dwell in tents. So I will make the Lord a house. But Nathan the prophet is given a message from the Lord. No, David, you will not build me up a temple. Your hands have known too much violence, but your son, Solomon, will. I who took you from following the sheep and made you a prince over the people, I who have been with you and cut your enemies off from you, I will make your name great and I will plant my people Israel in a place and I will make you a house, God says. And from your house, verse 13, I will, I think this is on the screen, I will establish a kingdom forever. I will be to your offspring a father. I will discipline him with the rod and the stripes of men. But hear this, my love will not depart from him. And your kingdom will be established forever. Now when we show up in Kings, which, by the way, is just one book. First and second Kings is one history. We separate and divide them, but that's not how it is in the Hebrew scriptures. And there's more history besides kings. There's chronicles, which kings will refer to at different spots. But Kings 1 and 2 are together one book detailing what? This fulfillment of what God promises to David. And what I want you to see first this morning is the prophet Nathan is called by God to speak God's word to David in God's name. And this word, by the way, will be tested by whether or not it comes to pass. And embedded in this is the call to help David imagine what might uh, become of this world. Like a parent. There is good news and bad news I have for you, David. I know I told you to do what your heart was set in regards to building God a home, but you won't do that. Instead, God will allow your son to do it. And from you... There will be a forever king and kingdom. This is the good news to go with the bad news of him not building the temple. Now the prophet of God speaks God's word, and that word is to evoke, to imagine an alternative perception of the world. I mean, David is the king. Kings do what they want. Yes, they have advisors. They have a council, but the decisions of the kingdom lie with the king. David wants to build a temple, a house for God. And yet, the prophet of the Lord tells him, you won't build it. That's for your son to do. And yet, know this. From your throne, your seat, it is secure. Your descendants will sit upon it forever. There is history. David has offspring. His offspring will be king. His Grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-grandchildren. From that line, there will always be a king. Now, notice what Nathan says. Why is this? It isn't the power of David. 
It isn't David's genes. It isn't his military might, right? What would most kings hope in? What would most kings imagine about their kingdom in regarding to always having someone on the throne? Wealth, power, military might. And this is where the prophet speaks and calls David to imagine a world built on something different, namely God's word and promises. God says he will establish it. God says he does this because he has set his love on David and his offspring forever. He says also that he will discipline them, but it will be as a father. Now the task of the prophet, according to the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, is to nurture, nourish, and evoke consciousness and perception to the consciousness and perception of the world around us. Now Brueggemann will say this is biblical imagination, imagination that hopes not in what it can see, taste, smell, touch, or feel, but hopes instead in God's word, a God who raises the dead. This is what the prophet does. He speaks God's word about how God intends to remake the world. In order to do this, the prophet must help, like a parent, to imagine the world better and to hope what God says he will do in said world. Now, in Deuteronomy 18, 17 to 22, Moses writes these words, The Lord said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything that I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, must be put to death. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. Now, this is what a prophet does. He's called by God to proclaim God's word in the world. He proclaims God's name, Yahweh, the name that cannot be named, the I am. And what is bound up in that name? Well, in Exodus 3, God appears to Moses at the burning bush, and God calls Moses into the ministry of being a prophet. Look at verse 7. I have seen the affliction of my people. Here, God speaking from the burning bush to Moses. I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I have come to deliver them, to bring them out of the the hand of the Egyptians and to set them in a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 10, I will send you, Moses, And I will be with you that you might bring my people out of Egypt. And Moses retorts, well, what shall I say? Who's sending me? Verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Well, that really clarifies it, God. Thank you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now this, friends, is God speaking into our hearts and minds to give us a biblically informed imagination about who he is. Let's go on. Later in Exodus 34, God expounds this, how he revealed himself to Moses. He reveals himself further to the prophet of God. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping my steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, now why is this important? Well, the role of the prophet is to help God's people imagine the way the world really is. To help them see rightly, and in order to see rightly, they must imagine something different from what they currently see. And friends, I want you to think about that in your world this morning. How do you need God's word to give you eyes to see the world rightly now? Just like Blakely, just like us, We need God's word to form and shape our imaginations about how the world is and how the world should and would be. Moses needed Israel to imagine what? Deliverance. A land of promise. Imagine speaking to those in slavery such words with no power to back your play. What would they have thought of Moses and his proclamation? Foolishness. Poppycock. Who are you to do this? And yet Moses speaks these words to the people to help them see rightly. And in order to see rightly, they must imagine something different from what they currently see. They have to see past a land of oppression Moses needs to proclaim to them the name of the Lord. And the prophet comes in God's name, announces the name by which he arrives, and speaks on behalf of Yahweh. And those words will be tested. And so Moses introduces a God to who he is by proclaiming his name. Moses calls the people to imagine what such a God might do in a world of slavery and oppression. And David receives a message from God through the prophet Nathan, and it calls David to imagine what his kingdom might be in a world where men take thrones by force. Imagine, David, a throne given and established by God in the tender, loving care like a father. And then we come to kings. David is old. And his son, Adonijah, has set himself up as king, apart from David's wishes or commands or even knowledge, and not Solomon, whom God promised would be king. And Bathsheba and Solomon's mother and then Nathan the prophet come to seek David the king. Is this what you want, King David? And he says, no. And David swears in 129 of Kings, 1 Kings 1, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this today. And so David calls Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, Benaniah, his general, and they quickly anoint Solomon, the king. See this. The world David lives in is organized against history. They don't remember and they ridicule hope. Everything must happen now. Adonijah tries to seize the throne as David is old and the prophet of God is called to imagine the world as it really is established by God and his word and his promises. 
And so Solomon is anointed king. And David says to Solomon in 2 Kings 1, I am about to go to the way of the earth. Be strong, show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies as it's written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all you do wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word, his promises, that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David calls Solomon to keep covenant with the Lord, to follow the law, to walk in his ways. And yet, his parting words are what? Well, in verse 5, what we don't have here, he tells him to deal with Joab. Joab, his former military commander, I promised I would kill him. I would not kill him. But Solomon, you made no such promise. And so as David dies, he entrusts Solomon with the mission of killing Joab. And then Solomon does that and more, eventually killing Adonijah after showing him mercy. After all the potential enemies are done away with, Solomon enters this period of peace. The kingdom grows, and Solomon is invited to ask the Lord for anything. I mean, if you were invited to ask such a question, what would you ask? I'll have three more wishes, please. Solomon asks for wisdom and is rewarded for such an ask. And then Solomon builds the temple, and the word of Nathan, the prophet, is fulfilled again. And in chapter 8, the ark is brought into the temple, the symbol of the presence of God in God's place, in the temple, in God's promised land. The kingdom is at peace. They are experiencing the fruit of the rule of God through their king. Now, I'm going to read a large chunk of, of scripture here. In chapter 8. So stay with me here. And Solomon prays in 8.15. And he said, Blessed be the Lord. Now he's in the temple. It's been built. Years upon years of promise being fulfilled in this moment. God's ark brought into the temple. Remember when David brought the ark into the city of God. He danced before the Lord. Unashamed. Right? This is a moment Solomon, the king, prays, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who was with his hand. With his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people out of Israel, out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might live there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I've built the house for, my, for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. I might have, continue, I might have forgot to fast forward. Sorry about that. He continues in verse 23. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth beneath, keeping covenant, showing steadfast love to your servants. Here, Moses' words, the prophet, in Solomon's words, 
keeping your steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all your heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared them. You have spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now, therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven, the highest heaven cannot contain you, God. How much less this house that I have built. Yet, I, yet, yet you have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you this day that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen. Now hear these words coming forward right here. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray towards this place and listen to he- in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. Verse 31. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding them according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn against, again, uh, again to you and acknowledge your name and pray, and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to your fathers. When heaven is shut up and there's no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray towards this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your servants, your people Israel. When you teach them the good way in which they should walk, and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence, or blight, or mildew, or locust, or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man, or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart, and stretching out his hands towards this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, And forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. That they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you give to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a faraway country. For your name's sake. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house here in heaven, your dwelling place. And do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, and do as, is, uh, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I built is called by your name. A few more. If your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord towards the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them, 
and give them to an enemy so that they're carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you towards the land which you gave them to their fathers, the city which you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then here in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you, all their transgressions that they have committed against you and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive that they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whatever they call upon you. For you separated them from among the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought them their fathers out of Egypt. O Lord, our God. I mean, what a prayer and dedication. And what's the refrain? Solomon calls the people to imagine a God who does what? Hears Israel's prayers and forgives. Hears Israel's prayers and acts. The temple is to be what? A place of prayers, a place of pleas for mercy, a place where God's people call out to God and are heard. And what we might imagine is that Israel will be established from this day forward forevermore as a people of prayer. And God is a God who delights to show mercy. Now one of those is true, right? For in verse 9, God says to Solomon, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and you do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I set before you, but go on to serve other gods and worship them, Then I will cut Israel off from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated my name I will cast out from my sight, and Israel will become a proverb, a byword among the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done this to the land and to his house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Here the Lord is pronouncing blessings and cursings in keeping with the covenant. He is speaking into their life to give them a biblical imagination And surely Solomon and Israel are set up to be God's people, living in God's place, experiencing God's rule and blessing. But then right after this chapter, the title in your ESV will say, Solomon's Other Acts. Is the temple a place of prayer? No. Largely, it's a bank vault storing up gold for taking and giving away. 
As soon as the queen of Sheba comes and marvels at Israel's fortune and Solomon's wisdom and the God of Israel, Solomon's married hundreds of foreign wives. And those foreign wives bring with them foreign gods. And Solomon is quickly making offerings and sacrificing to those gods. And so God raises up an adversary after adversary. And shortly after Solomon dies, Solomon's son Rehoboam, who was more evil than Solomon, has his kingdom ripped in two. All of Israel, except the tribe of Judah, is part of the northern kingdom under the rule of Jeroboam. And Jeroboam establishes two temples at Dan and Beersheba and plants two images of God, both golden calves at those temples. And he worships the Lord as well as all the northern kingdom there. And for the next three chapters, we are shown how Solomon's throne and son are undone. And we're introduced to more prophets. Two, in fact, appear to Jeroboam, the king of the north, calling him to repentance. One is called man of God, Ish Elohim, and the other is Ahijah. And what do those prophets do? They speak God's word in God's name and call Jeroboam, the king of the north, to imagine the world rightly. And we'll come back to his story. But this is what the prophet does. And from this point on, throughout the rest of the book, there are two main prophets, Elijah and Elisha, the men of God. They proclaim God's words, calling the people, more specifically kings, the Omri dynasty, to repentance, to what Solomon prayed, to turn and pray to the Lord, to stop worshiping other gods, to stop practicing in the ways of the world, namely finding power in shrines and treaties with foreign kings, and to entrust themselves to the Lord, who is the one who establishes them, to stop doing deeds of injustice to the orphan, the widow, the poor, the foreigner, to instead repent and turn to the Lord and walk in him and in his ways of justice and mercy. But David's sons don't listen to the prophets. The kings in the north don't listen to Elijah and Elisha, and the results are catastrophic. There is war, and there is famine, and there is violence, and there's destruction of every scale, and then there's exile. Israel cut off from the land. The temple burned and destroyed, and they are taken away, first to Assyria and then to Babylon. Now, here's where I want to land the plane. The book of Kings sets forth a prophetic imagination. A prophetic imagination nurtures and evokes to us an alternative view of how the world really is. And Kings does this how? Well, first, Kings centers the world around the word and the work of Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God. I am who I am. God is the centerpiece of the book of Kings. His word and promises to David are the story the, king, the book of Kings is telling. When Israel is destroyed by Assyria and Judah is carried away to Babylon, if we were reading this for the first time with fresh eyes, we would be wondering, how can God keep his promises? How can his promises be true? How can what he said to the prophet Nathan be true? Even with the last strange narrative as you come to the end of 2 Kings, the heir of David, Jehoiachin, king of Judah, is in prison, and he's released every night to come and dine at the king's table. Each day, he would take off his prison clothes and eat with the Babylonian king, and this king gave him whatever he needed. He 
even as we read this, we would still be wondering, how can God keep his promise to David when his king is in prison clothes? It will be the work of the Lord. He said, I will establish you and your offspring forever. I have set my love upon you as a father. Second, Kings centers on the words of the prophets. For the response to the prophetic word determines what? The rise and fall of dynasties and kingdoms. What I want you to see is that the Nathan the prophet's words are being fulfilled in how Israel and Judah respond to the words of Elijah and Elisha and others. Israel and Judah fall because they refuse to listen to the voice of God in the prophets of God. The prophetic word shapes the destinies of kingdoms throughout the book of Kings. The words of the prophets will be noted for their fulfillment. Those who trust and honor the word of God delivered by the prophets are given life and health and peace. And those who harden their hearts are turned over to the wrath of God in the consequences of their actions. And one of the hardest things we do as parent is letting our children make decisions that we know will cause them pain and hardship. Nathan, the prophet's words about the father's love and the discipline of the rod and the stripes holds true. And this leads to three. Kings shows us the failure of wisdom to achieve the promises of God. Now, remember, if you read the book, I encourage you to read the book, by the way, both First and Second Kings, as we kind of work our way through this. But royal wisdom is touted heavily in the first part of Kings, but it fails to deliver. Showing that Israel's hope for restoration, blessing, and life does not lie in human wisdom, no matter how much that wisdom attains. Kings, according to Peter Lightheart, can be read as a contradictory message to Proverbs, kind of like a real-life Ecclesiastes. The calculus of life is always beyond our grasp. It slips away the moment we try to understand or control it. There is truth that faithful kings achieve wealth and notoriety, and they are delivered from their enemies. Bad kings are rebuked and die in battle. But guess what? If you read Kings... The wicked king is delivered just as frequently as the righteous one. Ahab defeats the Armenians twice before falling to a chance Armenian arrow. Ahab's son defeats the Armenians twice. Wicked Joash of Israel trounces righteous Amiza of Judah. And Yahweh leads Israel in triumph over Aram during the reigns of Jehoaz and the equally wicked Jeroboam II. The book of Kings, especially Kings 1 to 11, narrates the limitations of royal wisdom, while the book as a whole demonstrates the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. A wisdom that finds history elusive, unfathomable, uncontrollable. And in its treatment of wisdom, then, First and Second Kings is prophetic literature demonstrating that wisdom is essential, yet ultimately ineffectual to deliver on what it promises. Fourth, kings show us not only does wisdom fail, but the Torah fails, the law fails. In Deuteronomy, Moses the prophet says, the king of Israel keeps the Torah before him all the days of his life. And Joshua 1.8 promises conquest, prosperity, and success to Joshua if he is careful to do according to all that's written in the law. And yet in kings, 
The only king connected to God's law is Josiah. And no sooner do we happen upon Josiah when he discovers the book of the law and leads Israel into covenant renewal that Yahweh lets Israel still be taken off into captivity. Throughout the kings, Israel neglects, forgets the law, and when it's recovered, even with obedience to it, the imaginable does not work. Wisdom can't save Israel, and neither can the law. That key chapter that we read, chapter 8, Solomon making the temple a place of prayer. You know what's interesting? No Davidic king ever prays towards the temple until Hezekiah, and only does he do it when he's threatened by the Assyrians, and his son Manasseh does more to defile the temple in Judah than any king before him. He sets a pole up in the temple court at the entrance to the temple of the goddess Asherah and bows down and worships it. Wisdom can't save, the law can't save, and kings shows that even the temple can't save. It's torn apart, burned by a Babylonian king. Everything that makes Israel Israel, king, priest, law, prophet, temple, is destroyed. And what then is the book trying to help us imagine? Well, one might say, well, the book's brutal. It's trying to help us imagine God is a God of wrath and vengeance. I mean, look at it. But I think instead, it offers us a God like Moses described, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I'm almost done, so hang here. This is what the prophets declare. God is always giving people more than they can ask or imagine. God is infinitely merciful and patient. I mean, Solomon dedicates the temple, and right away he turns to other kings, queens, and their gods. Those kings get worse and worse, remodeling the temple with each new coronation to a different god. Jeroboam erects shrines of golden calves. A man of God confronts him and splits the altar and warns him that a king named Josiah will rise up and destroy the altar of Jeroboam. But a decade after decade after decade pass, and Josiah hasn't come. Jeroboam over the way has 60 references to calf shrines. And each time... We wonder, how can God continue to let them do this? I mean, think about your own lack of patience for the small cries of injustice that you experience. I mean, how you want to rain fire down from heaven like James and John in those moments. And yet, over and over again, God is patient. And the king, and king seems to show that God is not petulant, but indulgent, a God who does not seem to realize that he can't run the world with a good dose of law in order. And so Kings shows us the imagination of a God and that only his mercy can save. And really, Kings is a book of offense like the book of Jonah. And what's the offense? The offense is God's mercy. God is so patient. David's sons continue to sin. Yet God is patient. And even though their kingdoms must die, and they do, here is where the prophetic imagination of kings shines through. Death is not allowed to have the final word. Though the Davidic kingdom is executed, Yahweh's promise to David remains. And the book of Kings tells the story of what? The death and resurrection of David's dynasty 
and the death and resurrection of David's son. And on the one hand, God's justice is shown. He does not wink at sin forever. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. And yet, on the other hand, there is reason justice is delayed and it's God's promises to his, his, his faithfulness to his promises. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. The Lord keeps his loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And so the book of Kings reveals the glory of our God and the incarnate one to come, Jesus. What wisdom and laws in the temple could not do, God has done in Jesus, his son, the God who is king. In the end, David lives only through what? His death. David's throne is only preserved through the grave of exile. This is a king who possesses real, there is a king who possesses real wisdom. There is a king who perfectly obeys the law. There is a king who is a living temple who gathers people who are far off to himself. And in him, true worship is found. And the prophet of God doesn't preach a message of moral reformation, but a message of faith in the God who raises the dead. The message is, Israel has sinned, therefore Israel must die. And its only hope is to entrust itself to a God who will give new life on the far side of death. Or even, Israel has sinned, Israel is already dead. Cling to the God who raises the dead. This is precisely the imaginative prophetic message of First and Second Kings, which systematically dismantles what? Israel's confidence in everything but the mercy and patience of God. Friends, I end this morning. What do you need to have systematically dismantled in your life? Where has your imagination been stifled? Where do you need to reimagine? Maybe better to ask you, where are you numb? Where are you numb? Especially in the realities that in this life, things die. Dreams die, passions die, youth dies. Kings, through the prophets, calls us to engage our experiences of suffering, loss, and death, to engage them not Pollyanna, but to engage them as real, as deep, grieving those losses, but also as holy places where we might hope in a God who raises the dead. Now, we're calling this series Mantle. Mantle is the prophetic anointing given to Elijah to speak into the imaginations of Israel the word of the Lord. That mantle is passed to Elijah to continue to do the same. It is the mantle that Jesus takes up when he begins his own prophetic ministry. It's a mantle that carries with it the words of blessing, the setting of God's love on his people through his words, his benediction. It is the covering that Elijah and Elisha offer through their very own bodies for Israel and the covering that Jesus provides once and for all through his body on the cross. Mantle is the imagination and hope that a God who raised the dead provides each one of us in a world where death reigns and where humanity tries to do everything to escape it. So as we come to the table this morning, let's view this table with a proper imagination and hope. I love what Brueggemann says about it. It is there, within and among us, for we are ordained of God to be a people of hope. It's there by virtue of our being the image of the promissory God. 
It is sealed there in the sacrament of baptism. It's dramatized in the Eucharist until he comes again. It's the structure of every creed that ends by trusting in God's promises. Hope is the decision to which God invites Israel and us. A decision against despair, against permanent consignment to chaos, oppression, barrenness, and exile. If God raises the dead through the seed of David, King Jesus, then even exile isn't a shut tomb. This is the message of the kings. I did all that in like 44 minutes. Let's pray. God, help us uh, as we come to the table to remember that that's true. This image, these very common things of bread and wine speak to our imagination of your promise. Dramatize for us. Broken bread, torn, poured out wine until he comes. We are invited this morning to once again trust in the promises enacted in this meal that through you we are made whole, forgiven. Through you we are invited into a kingdom, feasting at the table of the king. Our prison clothes, they're no more. We have been given new clothes. We stand in clothes white before the lamb who was slain for us. Our scarlet made as white as snow. That's what we enact as we come to this meal this morning. Your very promises, your very word. And so as we taste it, as we imbibe it, as we put it in our mouth, as we swallow, I pray that you would seal our hearts with your very promises, that you intend to keep us. You intend to establish us. We don't establish ourselves. We are established in you. And as a father, you will get us to the end through this meal, through the rod of discipline, through the stripes and pain of life. You intend to do that so that we have nothing to claim but you. So help us this morning with all of this to believe it, to imagine it. What might my life be like if I can imagine such a God who keeps his promises to a a thousand generations? Help us, God. In Christ's name, amen.